the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. 602 This Monday, April 12th. Hope you had a good weekend. Hope you're having a good start to your week. I um, If anyone's curious, I will tell you. I, I invented... Invented's a stretch because once upon a time I read a recipe like a year ago, but I improved on it and invented the best grilled ribs one can do in their backyard over the weekend. And um, if anyone's interested in that recipe, I will tell you how I did it. Pretty easy uh, and uh, and uh, fun. Uh, you, you want that for the summer, don't you? You want backyard grilling and barbecuing. You want... I mean, I know Joe Biden hasn't given us the clearance for it yet, but all the more reason to do so, I think. All the more reason to do so. Uh, one story, we spent a lot of time in the last uh, uh, two hours, uh, we spent a lot, fair amount of time on, uh, on, on, uh, on the infrastructure bill, on China, on spending, and on this um, very odd Mercedes Marxism of the uh, Black Lives Matter Matters movement. They declare themselves trained Marxists, and holy smoke, Patrice Colors has five properties, five private homes, and um, and and seems to be doing very well by the revolution, which coughed up ninety million dollars to her organization last year in donations. Ninety million dollars. That's a lot of money, especially when. Almost every nonprofit I know of is struggling, and when every for-profit was struggling. It's not as if 2020 represented anything like the seven fat years. Perhaps they were the seven leanest of years combined in one, and yet BLM scored 90 million bucks, and Patrice Kalur's self-declared trained Marxist, who teaches at Prescott College, by the way, no homes in Arizona so far as I know, uh, uh, purchased five, five properties. Um, the border. The border is the story that I'm not going to let go of, even if uh, the White House and the rest of the media wants you to let go of it. Byron York came down and visited the border last week with uh, Steve Scalise and some other Republican lawmakers. Um, here's the bottom line from what Byron York wrote. What the lawmakers discovered about the government's response to the surge at the border is this. It's entirely improvised, jury-rigged, thrown together in a scramble to accommodate thousands of migrants who were not coming just a month ago. And the reason it is being improvised is that during his first days in office, President Joe Biden blew up the foundation of the government's handling of migrants. With a series of executive actions, Biden threw out key policies with nothing ready to replace them. And he did it using rhetoric that invited migrants to rush to the border. More than 
172,000 last month alone, including nearly 19,000 unaccompanied children. Can we revisit that for a moment? 19,000, not children, 19,000 unaccompanied children. Where are they? The lawmakers went to Andalus uh, International Bridge that connects Mexican uh, Mexico to the United States. Under the bridge, U.S. officials have put together a makeshift center for processing migrants. The bridge is about a mile away from a spot on the Rio Grande River where migrants arrive 24-7. The most traffic is at night, so the lawmakers went about 11 at night, 11 p.m. There they saw hundreds of migrants who had just recently walked up from the riverbank, dirty, exhausted, confused. After hours of sitting around under the bridge, they were taken to the Dona Center. At Dona, the Republicans were stunned by what they saw. It's far worse than I thought it would be, and I thought it would be pretty bad, said Devin Nunez. From French Hill, you're in a pod of children that is supposed to hold 60 and has 350 in it, head to toe in space blankets. The lawmakers also looked at the state of Texas's efforts to secure the border. A huge part of the Federal Border Patrol's staff and energy is going to simply accommodating the flow of migrants. They've been taken away from actually patrolling the border, so Texas Governor Greg Abbott has come up with what he calls Operation Lone Star to have state law enforcement fill in the gaps. The effort helps, but it can't fix the fact that the Biden administration is misusing the Border Patrol as a social welfare organization. The Republicans pointed to several things Biden had done that created this current crisis. See, that's the thing about crises. Um, Some can be unexpected, some can be inherited, and some can be caused. This wasn't unexpected, and it wasn't inherited. It was caused. First, Biden did away with President Donald Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, which required asylum seekers to stay in Mexico, not the U.S., while the claims were being adjudicated. Second, Biden ended Trump's asylum agreements with the Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, to steer would-be asylum seekers from those nations into safer countries other than the U.S. Third, you've heard a lot about Title 42. Biden gutted Trump's use of Title 42, the government's authority to expel most migrants for the purposes of controlling the spread of COVID. Biden did not throw Title 42 away altogether, but it is by some accounts now letting most would-be migrants stay rather than be turned away because of the pandemic. Fourth, Biden came into office promising to end all deportations for the first 100 days of his presidency. He has done that. Fifth, Biden stopped construction of the Trump border wall. All of these moves opened the door to would-be illegal crossers and also sent the message to thousands of people in the Northern Triangle and elsewhere, come now and you can stay. The Republicans ended their trip with an appeal to President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Please come to the border. Take an actual personal look at the situation your policies have created. Um, Kamala Harris. She was put in charge. Kamala Harris was put in charge of the border crisis. Where is she? What has she said? 
Has she held a single press conference? She has not. Has the press asked her any questions about this? They have not been able to. Has she gone to the border? She has not. There is a there is a possible way this will just go away. And that's if the media just stopped covering it. That's what the Biden administration had wanted all along. That's why it did not grant them access. That is why it didn't grant them access to the facilities at the border where we were keeping children. 19,000 unaccompanied minors. 19,000 unaccompanied minors. Okay. I suppose, I suppose part of the cost of all this and part of the crisis of all this and part of the debate of all this is attached to the kinds of things the Biden administration is talking about with in infrastructure, their trillion-dollar infrastructure and jobs plans. Because it seems to me when columnists like we were reading earlier said there are things you can do to unleash the economy like spending trillions of dollars on jobs, maybe, maybe we have not seen probably since the 30s an effort, a Keynesian effort like that. We have not seen a notion of spending $2.3 trillion to create $2.7 million jobs. That's $852,000 per job. Does it take the government $852,000 per person to create a job? The truth is, probably not that much, but increasingly high numbers when you think about what the what the administration is doing to the value of the dollar combined with combined with the regulations that have to be engaged to create these these new jobs never mind new companies within the new industries they are trying to fund for these new jobs there is a way to unleash this economy there's a way to unleash this economy just as there's a way to secure the border. Both were done. Both were done in 2017, 18, and 19. Maybe that's the roadmap to look at and not something from the Communist Manifesto. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Portions of this show are brought to you by Solar Sandy, the woman who brought integrity back to solar in Arizona. The real difference between Solar Sandy and other solar companies is not just her integrity, but that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's super important when you're going solar that you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy is the right way. She has the formula. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back into your pocket. When you go solar, Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months, and for the first 50 families, she will give you a $1,000 signing bonus. That's right. No solar panel payments, no power bill for 12 months, and a $1,000 bonus at signing. There's no better time to go solar 
with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to AskSolarSandy.com. That's AskSolarSandy.com. Dinesh D'Souza. He's been at this a long time. His first book, Illiberal Education, came out circa 1990. And he's had uh, several important books since. Perhaps the biggest, most comprehensive of them is the one you don't hear much talk about, but still very worthwhile, called The End of Racism. I want to say it was published around 1999, somewhere around there. He, um, he like Dennis, like others, they confront the charge of systematic racism in this country with several arguments. One of them is a country of pervasive, that's certainly what systematic must mean, ubiquitous, um, wide, wide, certainly wide, racism doesn't need to invent it, to prove it, does it? It doesn't need to create more racism to prove that it is racist. If it's systematically racist, if it's ubiquitously per, uh, uh, racist, if the racism is prevalent and pervasive, it would be evident, wouldn't it? It would not need hoaxes. Dinesh writes, the students' administration and faculty of Albion College in Michigan were driven into a frenzy two weeks ago when racist and anti-Semitic graffiti surfaced in a dorm stairwell and photos were posted in a local news Facebook group. The photos included messages such as white power and KKK. Now, the campus police have discovered that a 20-year-old, excuse me, that a 21-year-old black student is responsible. He has admitted creating the graffiti, the graffiti and video evidence corroborates his confession, police said. Here we go again. Another fake racial incident, another hoax perpetrated by a supposed victim. This is Jesse Smollett all over again. It might be Covington Catholic all over again. It might be Duke Lacrosse all over again. Fake racial incidents are now commonplace, both on campus and in the culture. So the first interesting question is, why would someone seek to orchestrate a horrific event that didn't really happen? It can't be that the perpetrators from Smollett to the black student in Albion at Albion are merely trying to call attention to a social problem so that, they can, so that it can be promptly addressed. Blacks didn't have to stage lynchings in the 19th century because tragically there were a lot of them going on in plain sight. As Dennis likes to remind, you didn't have to invent anti-Semitism in Germany and Poland in the 1930s. It was there. Plenty of it. Enough. Moreover, why would Smollett and his campus counterparts seek to pin the blame on innocent parties for what they did, in fact, not do? A good way to understand this bizarre phenomenon is to turn to the discipline of economics and specifically to the law of supply 
and demand. It seems that both on the university campus and in the culture, the demand for racism far far exceeds the supply. To put it differently, there's an enormous desire to find racism, but there's not enough racism to be found. This is especially true on the progressive campus, which Albion certainly is. On such campuses, white students do backward somersaults to accommodate blacks and other minorities. It would be interesting to perform a sociological experiment in which black students approach whites and ask them to kiss their feet. I predict that many would. Of course, the experiment could not even be attempted in reverse. It would cause an uproar. So evidently, this black student wanted to find racism at Albion, but couldn't. So he decided to manufacture it. And what might his motive have been for doing that? Perhaps he was sincerely frustrated that the racism he blamed for his personal failures was scarcely in evidence. Consequently, by bringing out what he fervently believed to be hidden, he would then find corroboration for his own self-perception as a victim of wicked forces on campus he could not otherwise identify. That the student was psychologically disturbed in some way, I do not doubt. But the reason I feel no sympathy for him is because in an effort to assuage his own anxieties and also perhaps to achieve some public recognition as a poster figure for racist victimization, he's willing to falsely accuse others. He's like the cop who plants the evidence he wants to find so that he can arrest the guy he's convinced is guilty. It's called an abuse of power. These staged racial incidents are redolent of the false Me Too accusations that have also become quite common. Once again, the motives are psychological. A desire to take revenge on someone for a perceived offense or slight, or they can be political. An attempt to vindicate the claims of widespread sexism, or even an attempt to keep a nominee who might vote to overturn Roe v. Wade off of the Supreme Court. But this is where the plot of the Albion story gets even more interesting. Having been vindicated by the student's confession, the college pleads guilty anyway. You knew that was coming. Let me tell you about that when we come back. I'm Seth, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. So you have this college in Michigan, Albion College, where a student uh, spray paints, uh, defaces college property with KKK insignia and white supremacy statements. Turns out it was the actions of a black student who uh, pulled a hoax, uh, to put it, I suppose, no higher, and the college itself capitulates. The college apologizes, putting out this statement, quote, we know the, f- excuse me, we know the acts of racism that have occurred this week. First of all, what's the act of racism? A black student, I guess, 
I guess the act of racism, if one's being logical, is a slur on the entire white community. But I'm sure that's not what the college had in mind. Let me read this statement. We know the acts of racism that have occurred this week are not about one particular person or one particular incident. We know that there is a significant history of racial pain and trauma on campus, and we are taking actions to repair our community, close quote. This statement, D'Souza writes, is on its face a lie. There were not acts of racism that occurred. There was only a series of orchestrated acts that created a false impression of racism done by one person. This was, in fact, the act of one particular person, a black person. Yet, weirdly, the college minimizes the wicked act of false accusation by implying that its own history of racism somehow drove him to do it, I guess like admitting him. In other words, even though the specific incident was false, the college intends to treat it as if it indeed were true. It would be as if Brett Kavanaugh, upon being cleared of accusations of sexual predation, would then turn around and acknowledge that even though the specific actions attributed to him did not occur, he was nevertheless conscious of many insensitive and sexist actions he had taken as a teenager, and therefore he was assuming the responsibility of being a sexual predator anyway. This would, of course, never happen, which is why the college's actions require an explanation. Here, then, is the explanation. Most campuses, like Albion, like many other institutions in our culture, have created massive race industries within their bureaucracy. Campuses typically have innumerable innumerable deans and other bureaucrats whose full-time job is to fight racism. Faculties have anti-racism committees. There are racism consultants on hand to provide assistance. Student groups are mobilized to combat racism. We can see how it becomes an institutional problem for the race industry – However, when there's little or no racism to actually be found. Consequently, a bogus incident like the one this 20-year-old kid faked becomes not only useful to the perpetrator but also, also useful to the campus bureaucracy. They were waiting and hoping for something like this so that they could spring into action. It helps people understand why there's a race bureaucracy in the first place. I can only imagine the frustration and disappointment of these race professionals when the incident turns out to be fake. No wonder Albion is trying to recover, not from any genuine racism, but rather from the public impression created by the guilty student's confession that racism on campus is so scarce it has to be invented. Albion is eager to dispel that impression so that it can justify its race industry and the resources devoted to sustaining it. Bottom line, as long as the demand for racism outstrips the supply, there will be a market for faked racial incidents. Moreover, such incidents are encouraged, as in the case at Albion, by the failure of the college to turn its wrath on the perpetrator the way it surely would have done had the perpetrator been a white kid or some sort of white supremacist. As it is, 
the student has been temporarily suspended, not expelled, and neither the school nor the police have released his name. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. I remember seeing Reba in concert. Uh, man, it was a good show. It was, uh, I think it was called Ladies' Night Out. It was three of the top at the time. It was she, no, it was her, and Martina McBride and Sarah Evans. And we were in the sixth row. What a great show. Reba performed that song. I remember it. She also cried a lot when she sang. I think those songs still mean a lot to her personally. You don't see a lot of that. And this was, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, maybe 20. Uh, you don't see a lot of that. Anyway, uh, as long as uh, we're talking about what it means to be a trained Marxist, as long as we're revisiting analogs to the Soviet Union when we talk about the communism of China, it's probably worth talking about communism just a little bit. See, it doesn't help or do any good to use a descriptor that people don't understand. So I was a little hesitant when people were calling Barack Obama a Marxist and a progressive because I wasn't sure that people knew what that meant. And to the degree that some did, they probably thought it was a positive, especially if they were school children. I think we're doing a lot better on this front lately because as more and more communism and socialism presents its face, the more we become aware of what it is. Again, some people, however, will not find it to be a negative thing but a positive thing, indeed a moral thing. So bless Dennis Prager for explaining it at PragerU. Motives are much less important than behavior. We all know this. If someone has good intentions but treats people badly, those good intentions mean nothing. As it is with individuals, so it is with governments. Capitalism might sound less noble than communism. The individual pursues success to the best of his abilities. That's capitalism. Versus everyone shares everything equally. That's communism. But it is capitalism that has produced freedom. And it alone has lifted millions from poverty, while communism has kept millions impoverished and without exception crushed freedom. Capitalism, for all its imperfections, enables a decent society. Communism, whatever its stated intentions, leads to evil. Yet increasingly, people either ignore or deny the evil of this ideology, which within a period of only 60 years created modern totalitarianism and deprived more people of human rights and tortured and killed more people than any ideology in history. How can we explain this? There are two ways. One is ignorance. People just don't know the truth about communism. The second is willful blindness. People know the truth, but choose to ignore it because the truth about communism's horrors 
is too painful to confront. Given the sad state of our educational system, we can assume most people fall into the first category they just don't know. So let me offer some facts. But before I do, I need to address another question. Why is it important that everyone know what communism did? Here are three reasons. First, we have a moral obligation to the victims of communism not to forget them. Just as Americans have a moral obligation to remember the victims of slavery, we have the same obligation to the billion victims of communism, especially the hundred million who were murdered. Second, the best way to prevent an evil from reoccurring is to confront it in all its horror. The fact that many people today, especially young people, mention communism as a viable option for modern society proves they don't know communism's moral record. Therefore, they do not properly fear communism, which means this evil could happen again. And why could it happen again? That brings us to reason number three. The leaders of communist regimes and the vast number of people who helped those leaders torture, enslave, and murder were nearly all normal people. Of course, some were psychopaths, but most were not, which means that any society, including free ones, can devolve into communism or some analogous evil. Now some facts. Based on the authoritative Black Book of Communism, written by six French scholars and published in the United States by Harvard University Press, here are the numbers of people murdered by communist regimes, not soldiers, ordinary civilians. Vietnam, 1 million. Eastern Europe, 1 million. Ethiopia, 1.5 million. North Korea, 2 million. Cambodia, 2 million. The Soviet Union, 20 million. China, 65 million. And the numbers are conservative. And of course, these numbers do not describe the suffering endured by hundreds of millions of people who were not murdered. The systematic stripping people of their right to speak freely, to worship freely, to start a business, or even to travel without party permission. No non-communist judiciary or media. The poverty of nearly all communist countries. The imprisonment of vast numbers of people. And, of course, the trauma suffered by the hundreds of millions of friends and relatives of the murdered and imprisoned. These numbers don't tell you about the frozen millions in the vast Soviet Siberian prison camp system known as the Gulag Archipelago or the Vietnamese communists' routine practice of burying peasants alive to terrorize other peasants into supporting the communists or Mao Zedong's regular use of hideous tortures to punish opponents and intimidate peasants. People associate evil with darkness. That's not accurate. It is easy to look into the dark. It is very hard to stare into bright light. One should therefore associate evil with extreme brightness, given that people rarely look at real evil. And those who do not confront real evil often make up evils, like systemic racism in 21st century America, or toxic masculinity, or patriarchy, that are much easier to confront. The Book of Psalms states... Those of you who love God must hate evil. If you don't believe in God, here's another way of putting it. Those of you who love people must hate evil. If you don't hate communism, you don't care about, much less love, people. I'm Dennis Prager.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, and thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. It means a ton. We don't take any of it for granted that you would let us enter your cars, living rooms, bedrooms, minds, hearts, and souls, and ears. Thank gosh for uh, thank God for Dennis Prager and for lessons like that. Bill, I'm going to ask you to cut from that. Do you know what I'm going to ask you to cut from that? His recitation of the numbers per country. Just that litany. Just that litany. For whenever someone says something good about Marx, I want to just play that litany. Because there is no such litany to be said about Western civilization. And there is nothing innocent about a theory like Marxism or neo-Marxism now in America, there's nothing innocent about a theory that takes the worst of national socialism, that is to say, categorization of the decent and indecent by race, by ethnicity, and applying the class warfare analog to it. That's all neo-Marxism is. You don't hear them talking as much about class anymore as they do race. They have taken the race war and substituted it for the class war. And thus the Patrice Coulors and the BLMs are nothing like the socialists of old. They're like the national socialists of Germany. This is not a road we can afford to go down. No civilization can. We will do our best to protect it here. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. Class is dismissed.